So thank you everyone for coming to this, this lecture this evening. So for those of you who do not know me, my name is Michael Riggins and I am the assistant editor of the Davenant Press with the Davenant Institute. The Davenant Institute's mission is to um, preserve the wisdom of classical Protestantism and help the contemporary church uh, renew it uh, by, by means of this wisdom. So to that end, we do a number of things. We publish uh, several books, 31 titles. We have a residential study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains in South Carolina, where we host conferences and talks and give people time to come and study and, and reflect there in prayer. And we also have something called Davenant Hall, where we bring in prominent scholars and academics to teach classes on uh, biblical studies, philosophy, systematic theology, and, and any number of things. And so as a, as a, um, um, one, one of the things that we do in relation to that is that we invite these, these scholars to give lectures to the public so that they can see what kind of, what kind of um, academics we have working with us. So to that end, Mr. or Dr. Matt Colvin will be giving a lecture tonight entitled The Real Jesus Code, Subtlety and Indirection in Jesus's Communication. Matt Colvin is an ordained minister in the Reformed Episcopal Church and has served as a missionary in the Philippines and Indonesia. He holds a doctrine in Latin and Greek literature from Cornell University and has published scholarship on Heraclitus, the Stoics, and Plato. He is the author of The, Last, the Lost Supper, Revisiting Passover and the Origins of the Eucharist, and the translator of the 1950 Madeburg, did I pronounce that correctly? 1550 Madeburg Confession. 1550, <laughs> I apologize, Madeburg Confession. He is currently working on a study of the origins of ordained office and the question of women's ordination. He lives on Vancouver Island with his wife, Sora, and their four children. So having introduced Davenant and Dr. Colvin, I am going to turn it over to you. And it's running off my iPad, so hopefully there won't be any glitches. I want to credit Davenant Hall's uh, communications director, Reese Liberty, for the title of this talk. But if you came here with your hopes up for some salacious gossip about Jesus's secret marriage to Mary Magdalene, or skullduggery about the Bogomils and the Knights Templars, or the Vatican's albino ninja assassins covering up the whole sordid affair, then I, you're going to be disappointed, and you should probably go read Dan Brown or watch a Tom Hanks movie instead. <clears throat> the aim of this talk is to bring a little more vividness to the events of Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane as it is recorded for us in the canonical Gospels. But first, we need to get some examples. <clears throat> Those of you who have read David Dalbe or listened to Alistair Roberts' comments on the Book of Ruth from his podcast will recall that David Dobby posits a provocative reinterpretation of the Book of Ruth 4 verse 5. Instead of leaving everything to chance and just hoping that the rival kinsman redeemer in Ruth, on Dobby's understanding, Boaz crafts his words in precisely the right way to cause Mr. So-and-so the rival kinsman redeemer, to draw the wrong conclusions. He says, what day you acquire the field from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you also acquire the wife of the dead to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. That is, Boaz is effectively saying, the field comes with this widow. It's the package deal. 
And so Mr. So-and-so looks at that and he says, well, quite wrongly, he says, that the widow in this case must mean Naomi. And he knows she's too old to have any more children. And so he draws the conclusion, then I cannot redeem her, lest I destroy my own inheritance. A childless wife will leave Mr. So-and-so without any heirs. He concludes that he must steer clear of this field, unaware that the wife of the dead is a deliberately ambiguous construction that could point equally well to the young and fertile Ruth, a fact that Boaz then triumphantly announces, but only after Mr. So-and-so has sealed the deal by the legal formality of removing his sandal. Now notice what has happened here. The assumptions of a specific audience, but not perhaps of another audience, are exploited in order to lead that audience into misinterpretation. Something similar is at the root of dramatic or tragic irony. When Oedipus, who's investigating the as yet unsolved murder of his father Laius, says, if I remove this taint, it is not for a stranger, but for myself, the man who murdered him might make the same attempt on me. This utterance has two meanings. One is the meaning on the level of performance, that is, the meaning that the character Oedipus intends. Namely, he's thinking, the previous king was assassinated by some unknown assailant, and that guy has never been caught, and I'm king now, so who knows, but that the same assassin might target me in a similar manner. That's what he's thinking. But at the same time, the audience is aware of another meaning on the level of communication from the playwright Sophocles to the audience, a meaning that the character Oedipus is unaware of, even though he himself is speaking the line to us. Okay? That's dramatic irony. And there's a further case. I, like, I plucked this meme from one of my Facebook friends. Some weapons need no introduction. And there it is at the lower right, Socrates' favorite weapon, the Alenchus. <coughs> um, he is going to trap somebody and expose their ignorance and get them to contradict themselves. And he's going to do it by the use of Socratic irony pretending that he just wants to learn from them. And poor ignorant Socrates would like to sit at your feet, Euthyphro. Can you please teach me what the pious is? Okay. So in Socratic irony, there's also a dual meaning to every utterance that is split between the knowing audience of the readers of the dialogue and Plato himself, the author, and the unknowing audience of Euthyphro or Pericles, or whoever Socrates is talking with in dialogue. But one difference between what Boaz has done and what Euripides or Sophocles or Plato is doing is that Boaz in Book of Ruth has pulled this double meaning on someone in real life without the advantage of also writing his victim's lines. Mr. So-and-so is not a fictional creation of Boaz. He's a real person. So it takes some skill to trick real people. Now, a moment's reflection will show that this is not easy to do. And some of us who are parents may have attempted this from time to time. Uh, the usual time when my wife and I attempt this is in a, in a minivan full of kids. And we're trying to talk to each other without letting our children know what we're talking about. For instance, we want to debate whether to stop for ice cream. I'm sorry. Honey, do you want to pull over and get some I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M? Or maybe we want to flirt with each other in code without grossing out the kids. 
And when children are very young, you can do this. You just spell the words out instead of pronouncing them, or you talk Pig Latin, or switching to Spanish, or whatever. But as your children get older, as they advance in years and cunning, other methods have to be devised. And even if you can still fool them so that they don't know what you're talking about, it's even harder to communicate your meaning to someone else without letting the audience that you want to remain ignorant know that you're doing it. So what does this have to do with Jesus, much in every way? More than anyone else in Scripture, more than Boaz or Solomon or Joab or Nathan or that arch-trickster arch Jacob himself, Jesus is a master of coded communication. Again and again, he shows himself able to reveal his meaning to one audience while concealing it from another. Of course, such concealment has meant that his meaning has sometimes been concealed also from scholars. And indeed, the most famous treatment of this topic is from a leading exponent of the first quest for the historical Jesus, William Rader. In his 1901 book, Das Messias Geheimnis in den Evangelien, argues that the identification of Jesus as Israel's Messiah was never claimed by Jesus himself. It was only concocted after the fact by the later church so that the gospel writers were under pressure to come up with some way to harmonize a bunch of traditions that they had about a non-Messianic Jesus, a Jesus who wasn't the Messiah, that they had a whole bunch of traditions from their all sources about that. And then they had to try to fit that with the later church's belief that Jesus was the Messiah. And according to Veda, the solution to this problem was the Messias Geheimnis, the Messianic secret. And as Richard Hayes summarizes it, Jesus had deliberately hidden his identity as Messiah from his contemporaries, demanding that his disciples keep silence about it during his lifetime. No problem, this is not what the Gospels record. What they show us is a Jesus who is claiming to be the Messiah, but he's doing so in a carefully controlled and subtle manner that's intended to be understood by some people and not by other people. Jesus didn't follow the advice of his brothers in John 7, 4, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus didn't don a sandwich board and walk around and hand out business cards saying, hi, I'm the Messiah. Instead, he used cryptic utterances and coded actions to carefully manage the response to his messianic status. And he did this because it was necessary for his earthly ministry and especially for the, the accomplishment of his sacrificial death. After all, imagine that Jesus had appeared on top of the Jerusalem temple where Satan had tempted him before and that he had suddenly been revealed in the blazing white glory and the voice from heaven and Elijah and, Mo and Moses as his wingmen just the same way he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Imagine Jesus did that, right in the middle of Jerusalem and at the temple. How do you think Passion Week would have gone then? So this problem arises at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry with the wedding at Cana in John chapter two. There we are told Jesus is confronted with his mother telling him that they have no more wine. And his response to this is the unfortunately harsh words that you see here in, in John 2, 4. And high school students, don't try this at home. Don't, don't address your mother as woman. Right? That's what Jesus is doing here. And the, the translations of this in our English Bibles 
are deplorably bad. So the ESV is pretty typical. Woman, what does this have to do with me? The NIV is worse. Woman, why do you involve me? As though Jesus were asking why he should trouble himself about a problem that isn't his. But the force of the phrase is quite different. It's a literal translation of a Hebrew idiom, malivalak. It's found several times in the Old Testament. Judges 11:13. then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me? And so Tuigen says, <coughs> that you have attacked my country. Similarly, in 1 Kings 17, 18, the widow of Zarephath says to Elijah, what do you have against me? Man of God, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So in all these passages, the complaint is, what have I done to you that you are causing me trouble unjustly? Why are you trying to bring disaster on me? Did I wrong you in some way? In other words, Jesus is already, before his first miracle, concerned that his mother is asking him to take an irrevocable step that must lead to his revelation as the Messiah and inevitable conflict with the authorities of Israel. So the concern to prevent his identity from being known through his miracles continues throughout Jesus' ministry. You need only think of the numerous times when he straightly warns those whom he has healed not to make it known. We might even entertain Rada's suggestion about Jesus' words in Matthew 8.4 and Luke 5.14. When he has just healed a leper, he tells him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. This command, Rados says, is capable of bearing the appearance of an effective means of diverting attention away from Jesus. For this and this alone will be the point of the demand. Jesus, that is, Mark's Jesus, Rada adds, wishes to hide himself behind the pronouncement of the priest. In other words, priests are in the habit of examining lepers and pronouncing them clean if their skin discoloration has disappeared. That's sort of one of the things that priests do. So Jesus is intending to sort of pass off the healing that he has just done as though it were a spontaneous recovery to be verified by the priests. Despite the fact that this trick requires the temple still standing and requires the priesthood still officiating and still examining lepers, Veda nonetheless ascribes it not to the historical Jesus in the time of the temple, but to Mark's Jesus, which of course he thinks is very late. Other than miracles, the most prominent feature of Jesus's ministry was his teaching, especially his parables. Now parables are, as a genre, deliberately ambiguous and frequently presented to a hostile audience. They belong to the same class of literature as fables, with their origin in the discourse of slaves to masters or other subaltern figures in need of plausible deniability when they're talking to a more powerful person. No, master, I wasn't talking about you. Please don't beat me. It's a story about a frog or a fox or a crow or a bull. Right? Parables are used in the Old Testament when indirect communication is desired. For instance, we have the, the prophet Nathan has to confront David about his adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 12, or the wise woman of Tekoa interceding with David at Joab's behest for the banished Absalom in 2 Samuel 14. Parables afford their tellers an opportunity to target the communication 
or to divide their audience into knowing and ignorant, knowing and unknowing audiences. That is indeed part of the purpose of parables, as Jesus himself professes in Matthew 13, 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Often the gospels record the different or disparate responses of the ignorant audience and the knowing audience to Jesus's words and symbolic actions. So for instance, in Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a obvious acting out of Zechariah 9.9, behold, your king comes to you, etc. It's a way of claiming to be Israel's coming king. And his coded action finds its mark unerringly. The multitudes that went before are a knowing audience, and their response evinces their knowledge. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That's what they say. They get it. Meanwhile, the city of Jerusalem is the ignorant audience. All the city was moved, saying, who is this? The parable of the wicked vine dressers is another example, and in fact, it's the exception that proves the rule. Jesus tells it in Jerusalem during the Passion Week when he's bringing things to a climax. Matthew 21, 45 notes the reaction of the hostile audience. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Or Mark 12, 12, similarly ominous notice, and they sought to lay hold on him. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. That is, they recognized themselves in the wicked vine dressers who are attempting to kill the heir of the vineyard. The fact that Jesus' meaning in this parable is understood both by his targets and by the people is itself noteworthy. It means that Jesus is ready to run the risk of antagonizing the chief priests and Pharisees more openly. There's no need to divide his audience into knowing and unknowing because his hour is almost here. The techniques of Jesus's indirection are manifold. One is the title, The Son of Man. There is by now a huge literature on this phrase, not least Maurice Casey's book, The Solution to the Son of Man Problem. Suffice to say, it is an Aramaism, Ba'anash, and it means literally someone, a human being. It's also a way for Jesus to talk about himself in the third person without any direct self-reference, and with the added benefit of echoing Daniel 7.13. One like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. <clears throat> Another instance of indirection would be the non-denial response that Jesus gives to three titanic questions during the Passion Week. First question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Asked by the High Priest in Matthew 26.64. Second question, you are the King of the Jews? Asked by Pilate <clears throat> while Jesus is on trial. And finally, a little bit earlier, is it I who am to betray you, Lord? Asked by Judas in Matthew 26, 25. And to all of these questions, Jesus' answer is, Amata, suepas, you have said it. Now, this gets frequently misunderstood. Some people translate it, but you can find Bibles where it's translated. Um, you have said correctly. In other words, that it's simply a way for Jesus to say, yes, bingo, you got it right. That's not what it means. David Dalbert illuminates the meaning of the phrase by a story from the Tosepta, Babakama Kalim 1.6, which records a dispute among the rabbis over whether a certain entrance to the temple had required a washing of hands and feet. After the war with Rome, Rabbi Simon the Modest, in the presence of Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkinus, 
professed that he used to enter that particular gate of the temple without washing first. Whereupon Eliezer, a giant in learning and piety, yet rudely domineering, asked him which was more esteemed, he or the high priest. Simon kept silent. Eliezer, you are ashamed to admit that the high priest's dog was more esteemed than you. Simon, Rabbi, you have said it. Eliezer, by the temple service, they would break even the high priest's head with their clubs were he to enter unwashed. What would you do that the guard might not, fi might not find you? It's evident here that you have said it does not amount to a mere yes. It's more like, I'm not going to argue with you, but it came out of your mouth, not mine. With these things in mind, then, these various methods of indirection, let us now turn to the scene that the advertisement for this talk probably led you to expect with its painting of the Last Supper after Leonardo da Vinci, namely the interactions between Jesus and Judas on the night of his arrest. It is Judas to whom Jesus directs one of his you have said it replies when Judas asks, is it I, Lord? And actually, that's not a, a quite accurate translation for Judas's question in, in Matthew's gospel is, Meiti egoe me, Rabbi? Where Meiti expects a no answer, right? Surely not I. Num in Latin. <clears throat> Consider them how Jesus's you have said it reply must be construed. It's not equivalent to, bingo, Judas, you're going to betray me. With his second person verb of saying, Jesus is casting the responsibility on Judas himself. The other gospels accounts of this moment are not easy to harmonize, but it's not impossible either. The likely solution is to say that they represent the reports of different witnesses about the same events. Mark's gospel omits the dialogue with Judas specifically. Luke reports only a general debate among the disciples. They began to debate among themselves or with each other about who it was, was going to betray him. It's John's gospel that gives us the most interesting account from Jesus's innermost ring. And it's that account that I would like to examine now. Remember the audience. Pacha Leonardo, it's not just the Twelve. There's a larger group gathered, and indeed they have been sent ahead to prepare the upper room for the Passover, since Mark 14, 16, and 17 says that his disciples went forth and came into the city and found, as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening, he cometh with the twelve. So other disciples made ready, and then Jesus with his inner circle of the twelve arrived later. And again, Jesus' answer to the initial question of who would betray him only makes sense against the background of a larger group. He says, it is one of the 12 that dippeth with me in the dish, Mark 14, 20. So not any of the larger group that's not sharing the dish with him. It assumes that there's two different sections of the people celebrating the Passover in the upper room. We have, again, a differentiated audience for what Jesus is about to do. And he restricts his meaning to the narrowest circle possible. Just Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, traditionally John. At any rate, Jesus' reply is quite clever. He designates an action that he will perform to mark out the betrayer. But it is an action that first is unknown to the rest of the audience, and second is fully significant only against the background of Israel's scriptures. First, in the previous chapter, John 13, Jesus has already quoted Psalm 41, 9. 
here's the larger context of that line, just in case there might be some Richard Hayes style metalepsis at work. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So we have already been told that Jesus is thinking about his betrayal in terms of this psalm. Accordingly, when he's asked to identify his betrayer, that is, his enemy, he does it by setting up a symbolic piece of bread, known only to Peter and perhaps the beloved disciple. This symbol has multiple resonances. First, it underscores the intimate relationship that aggravates and exacerbates Judas's act of betrayal. It's worse because he's one of the 12. Second, it allows Jesus to speak to Peter indirectly and thus in such a way that he's not understood either by Judas or by the rest of the ignorant audience. And this in turn should very likely be connected with another piece of bread that Jesus uses at the same meal, namely the bread of which he says, this is my body, or even in Aramaic, this is me. It's not my purpose tonight to talk about that piece of bread, but I have written a little book about it, arguing that it is another piece of indirect communication, namely a self-identification by Jesus, telling those who understand it in terms of pre-existing Passover symbolism that he is Israel's Messiah. In other words, everybody knew that this bread already represented the Messiah. For Jesus to say, this is my body, is to say, I am the Messiah. At any rate, here, I only note that such an interpretation is given additional plausibility by Jesus' use of a very similar piece of coded food to identify his betrayer. There is a third nuance. Proverbs 25.21 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Trefe alton. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So far, so good. That is the reading of Codex Alexandrinus and Codex Vaticanus. I'm sorry, Codex Alexandrinus and Codex Sinaiticus. And so here's, here's Psalm 41, and Jesus is already quoted in the previous chapter. And then Proverbs 25, 21. Okay, so we look at it here. This is from the Vals Hanhart Septuagint. And we got this verb, trefe. If your enemy, your exos, is hungry, then trephaeotom, an imperative. But in Codex Vaticanus, down here in the apparatus, we find a different verb. Psalmitseotom, give him a morsel. It is a rare word, a facultative verb formation from the noun psalmion, morsel. That is the word that the fourth gospel uses in Jesus's explanation of the symbolism. It is the one for whom I will dip the psalmion and give it to him. Thus, Jesus is again using Old Testament imagery to cryptically identify Judas as his enemy, the one to whom he gives morsels. And in one of the most horrifying moments of biblical narrative, we are told that after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Incidentally, by the way, this textual note that you see in the apparatus of the Septuagint must be considered mistaken because it says right afterwards, X out of Romans 12.20, which is their way of saying that the scribes of Codex Vaticanus changed the wording from trefe to psalmitse in order to match 
the quotation of this verse in Romans, which uses some say, give him a morsel. But if I'm right, and Jesus is already acting out this proverb and doing so in such a way that he touches on this verb somitse, then we need to reject Ralph's explanation that this is emended by comparison with Romans. The reading somitse must be earlier than Jesus, and therefore it cannot have been derived from Romans. This entire scene in which Jesus is acting out a verse from Proverbs is of a piece with the rest of Jesus' self-understanding and the way he uses the Bible in his own actions. This is the Messiah, after all, who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in an unmistakable charade of Zechariah 9, whose cry of dereliction on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is an acting out of Psalm 22. This is the Messiah who took Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 as his agenda and read them out as his inaugural sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth and said, they're fulfilled in your hearing. No, it will not do to suppose that every instance of Jesus taking the Old Testament as his script is evidence of fabrication and Vaticania ex rentu by the later church. I'm reminded of critical scholars who mark the song of Jonah from the belly of the fish which is made up of a whole bunch of verses from the Psalms, and they grab it and they say, ah, a later edition, something added afterwards to the surrounding prose narrative, as though there were anything implausible about an Israelite prophet knowing the Psalms and praying to God with all the verses he could think about that concerned drowning in the sea. That's what Jonah has done. Similarly, we must come to grips with just how deeply saturated Jesus' mind was with Israel's scriptures. But back to the upper room, where we find that Jesus continues to use the most cryptic communication. John 13, 27 has his next words addressed to Judas. Ho poies, poies on tachyon. What you are doing, do sooner. An attempt to sway the timing of Judas's actions, but incomprehensible to the rest of the disciples. They're the ignorant audience, except perhaps Peter and the beloved disciple. And indeed, the text notes their misunderstanding. It records it for us. No one of those reclining knew with regard to what he said this to him. For some suppose, since Judas had the money purse, that Jesus was telling him, buy the things we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor, which is a habitual thing Jews, Jews do uh, as part of celebrating Passover. And the question arises, does even Judas himself know what Jesus means for him to do more quickly? I'm not sure. I confess I'm uncertain on this point, but I think it's likely that Judas doesn't understand it in light of the final exchange between Judas and Jesus. For Jesus will speak to Judas one last time at the arrest in Gethsemane. And again, the Gospels give slightly differing accounts, but it's Matthew 26, 48 to 50 that records the part that I want to talk about. The one betraying him gave a sign, a semeion, to them saying, whomever I kiss, he it is, arrest him. Now, against the shifting phantasmagoric background of the other indirect communication that we've seen this evening, we should recognize this for exactly what it is. It is another instance of indirection, but it's an instance attempted and engineered by Judas. We are told that immediately coming forward, he said to Jesus, greetings, Rabbi, and he cataphilation planted a kiss on him might be the best rendering. Strack Bellebeck then, our, our 
by the way, I'm putting a plug for Strack Bilbeck. It's just come out in English translation, the third volume first. The other two, I guess the, ne the next one will be out in the next couple months. And then the, the first volume, the big one everyone wants on Matthew's Gospel, uh, will come out sometime in 2022. So first time in English, this year and next. Pick it up. It's got a lot of good material in it. Anyway, Strack Bilbeck helpfully point out several instances where kisses are used as a polite and respectful greeting from one rabbi to another, or from a rabbi's pupil to the rabbi, or from a rabbi to the pupil. In other words, this is not an unusual or outlandish thing for Judas to be doing. In fact, it's probable that Judas hopes it will pass unnoticed. It's an attempt to do what Jesus has done so often. Judas wants to communicate to his co-conspirators and the armed band that he showed up in Gethsemane with, without letting Jesus or the other disciples know what he's doing. He wants the armed band from the chief priest to be the knowing audience, and he wants Jesus to be the unknowing audience. But it doesn't work, because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And there follows a phrase that has puzzled scholars. <clears throat> so he kissed him, cut a listen, and then Jesus said to him, here's the phrase, Hetaire, but Jesus said to him, and notice my rendering, but Jesus said. I grabbed that day and I want it to mean but. And it's true that it might be a mere and, but I hope to give you reasons to think that the contrastive but is the right rendering. First, there's the address of Judas as Hatairos. Hatairé, friend is too strong for this word. Maybe the Australian mate or the communist comrade, or the word, a buddy, captures it better. The word has a long history in Greek literature. It's the word that Odysseus uses for all his sailors who get eaten by Cyclops and Lystragonians and Scylla. It's Plato and Xenophon's word for Socrates' philosophical circle of young men that love to hang out with him and hear him embarrass people. Against this background, Jesus' use of hetaire is an implicit rebuke of Judas, for acting in violation of an existing relationship of loyalty and comradeship. But in Matthew's gospel, Hetaire also appears in chapter 22, 12. When that's, that's Jesus's parable about the man without a wedding garment. And the king in that parable, after he addresses that man as Hetaire, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He follows that up with bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness were reminded of Judas. Immediately he went out, and it was night. There remains the vexed grammar of the rest of Jesus's utterance, epopare. And here your English Bibles once again have failed you. I'm not going to rehearse them all, but the most common renderings are the King James versions, friend, wherefore art thou come, or the NIVs, do what you came for. They're both wrong. Uh, NASB goes with the NIV, do what you come for, ESV, do what you came to do. Others have, why are you here? All of this is a mistake. First, there can be no interrogative force. Jesus is not asking Judas a question. If we look at the Greek, this pronoun here, ho, is from the relative pronoun, ho, say, ho. It is not an interrogative. You cannot use it to ask a question. It means that for which you are here, not for what are you here? Second, the imperative rending do this is also unwarranted, for there is no command. 
There's no verb at all. Right? The thing for which you are here, no verb. Jesus is saying, that for which you are here, much as we might say, to the point, without a verb. No need for false speeches addressing me as rabbi or coded kisses to avoid looking like you're betraying me. You are here to betray me, and you've done it. Don't dress it up. Don't put extra spices. Don't put any frills. Don't put any distractions. Not only is this a more literal and true to the Greek rendering, it's also easier to harmonize with the words that Jesus says to Judas in Luke's gospel. With a kiss, you are betraying the Son of Man, an utterance that pierces through the veiled symbolism and exposes the ugliness behind it. Jesus is letting Judas know that his attempt to dissemble his meaning from Jesus has not succeeded. And indeed, he's only doing what Jesus has already planned and intended that he should do. We are now in a position to see the error of the liberal Roman Catholic scholar John P. Meyer's approach to the story of Jesus' betrayal by Judas. For Meyer, Old Testament texts like Psalm 41 or Proverbs 25 with its talk about the morsel have been applied to the story after the fact by the most tenuous of connections. He writes, most of the scripture texts cited apply to Judas only by the bro a broad stretch of the imagination. We have here a prime example of the application of the criterion of embarrassment. An embarrassed church was evidently struggling with the scandalous fact of the betrayal, a fact that was too well known to deny, and it did the best it could to find some Old Testament text that could qualify as prophecies of the tragedy. None of the texts taken by itself could have given rise to the idea of the betrayal of Jesus by one of the 12. On the contrary, I think we see a strikingly vivid realism and historical veracity to Jesus' utterances and actions toward Judas, and especially his use of the Old Testament. It is not merely that he quotes them as adornment, but he acts them out and uses them as material for his subtle communication. The nuances that we've discussed tonight bear on their face the unmistakable mark of Jesus's personality. They are the words and actions of a man completely in control of the events of the Passion Week, not least in control of who understands what and when. It had to be so. If they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. There is one more piece of indirect communication in Gethsemane that is worth mentioning here, but it's not by Jesus or Judas. It comes from Simon Peter, when he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. There's Giotto's rendering of that from the Arena Chapel. You see Peter leaning over with his knife. It is a curious episode for many reasons. First, there's the fact that none of the synoptic gospels actually names Peter as the disciple who wounded the servant of the high priest, nor do they name the servant. It's only John's gospel that gives us both these names. The servant is Malchus, Mr. King, John 18.10, and Peter is now named explicitly as the perpetrator. Why this difference? Richard Bauckham helpfully points out that in the synoptic gospels, Malchus is simply referred to as the servant of the high priest, the servant with the definite, definite article. Now, the high priest certainly had more servants or slaves than one, Barkham says. Commentators have therefore been hard-pressed to explain the definite the in this case. Perhaps the meaning is that this servant of the high priest was the officer in charge of the arresting party. He was the most important person in that party, but his name may have been remembered in the early Jerusalem church, not simply for that reason, 
but also because of the injury to him, which remained, so to speak, an unsolved crime of which Peter was the as yet undetected perpetrator. Malchus was an influential person in the high priest's entourage with a personal grudge against the disciples of Jesus. Thus, the synoptic gospel writers, working soon after the events of Jesus's earthly ministry and in an atmosphere of fear and persecution, leave out Simon Peter's name as a matter of protective anonymity. We don't want anybody to find out who actually did it. John, writing his gospel later, has no such concern. Probably Peter is already dead, and therefore he freely names both Simon Peter and Malchus. A second question is this. Why the ear? Are we to think that Peter struck Malchus's ear at random, kind of like Mike Tyson biting Evander Holyfield's ear? I mean, why did he pick the ear? It was at the right height, and it was sticking out of his head. It was a tempting target. Right? Or maybe Peter was aiming to chop his head in half, and he just kind of missed and struck a glancing blow on the side of the head that chopped the ear off. This question is addressed by David Dalbert and uh, Rostovsev in a couple of articles from the 1930s. And they point out that in Josephus, in his Antiquities, 14, 13, the Maccabean priest king Antigonus II chose the ears as a target for mutilation in order to disqualify his rival, Hyrcanus II. Being afraid that Hyrcanus, who was under the guard of the Parthians, might have his kingdom restored to him by the multitude, Antigonus cut off his ears and thereby took care that the high priesthood should never come to him anymore because he was maimed, while the law required that this dignity, the high priesthood, should belong to none but such as had all their members entire. In another passage of Josephus in the Jewish War, 113, um, section 270, the same episode is described differently. Antigonus himself also bit off Hyrcanus's ears with his own teeth as he fell down upon his knees to him so that he might never again be able, upon any change of affairs, to take the high priesthood again, for the high priest that officiated had to be complete and without blemish. So we have a Hasmonean priest mutilating the ears of his predecessor and rival, precisely in order to disqualify him from the high priesthood. Dalbert and Rostovsev point out that the same action was taken by a rabbi, Yohanan ben Zakkai, from the Second Temple period, roughly contemporaneous with the Apostle Paul, the Tosefta in uh, Tractate Pawa, about the sacrifice of the red heifer, 3.8, records the Sadducean high priest arrived in a state of cleanness, contrary to the principles of the Pharisees. Yohanan ben Zakkai performed the traditional rite of the elders and indeed displayed exceptional courtesy. How fit you are for the high priesthood, he says this, this Sadducee. Then, however, when the high priest came up from his immersion bath, with all preparations complete to deal with the red heifer, he's ready, he's clean, he's, he's all set to go. The rabbi comes up and slits his ear, thus disabling him from cultic service. What Peter did to Malchus was by no means random. The targeting of the high priest's servant and the type of injury inflicted were quite deliberate. As Dalby puts it, it was a very well-chosen insult. The wound was of a type which, had it been inflicted on the servant's master, would have forced him from office, and there can have been nobody who did not understand. This observation leads to a further detail. As Rostovsev notes, there is variation among the words used by the four Gospels for the wounded body part of Malchus. Luke calls it tous, 
plain vanilla word for ear. But Matthew's gospel calls it tootion, with a diminutive. And Mark and Luke, I'm sorry, Mark and John use tootarion, another diminutive. They may simply mean ear in Hellenistic Greek, but some scholars have seen them as words for the earlobe specifically. That is, the part of the ear that would have been pierced with an awl for the ritual of keeping a slave for life in Exodus 21.6. It was not then a random slashing, but the targeting of a very small but ritually significant body part, clearly communicating intended insult to the high priest himself. And it is of a piece with some of Peter's other mistakes. Lord, this will never happen to you. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was talking about. Peter has, as yet, no clear understanding of what Jesus is about to do. An armed resistance to Jesus' arrest, coupled with insults to the high priest, well, such a brash and blatant, blatant threat is not part of Jesus' agenda. He promptly puts a stop to it by healing the ear, telling Peter to put the sword away. There will be a confrontation between Jesus and the high priest, but it will not be with swords, and it won't be in the garden. In conclusion, I hope you see now how Jesus is in total control of his communication during the Passion Week, how the Old Testament is not just window dressing applied to his words as ex post facto typology, but is woven into his communication, and how the unfolding of events is orchestrated by Jesus' revealing and concealing his meaning from Judas and his disciples. Thank you. So, Mr. Viggins, what is the procedure now? <laughs> thank you for that lecture. That was wonderful. I think, I think that everybody enjoyed that. So at this point, we are going to take about a three to five minute break to give everybody a chance to think of some questions. I see that everyone is familiar with how to use the chat box, but there is also another box next to it for specifically for Q&A. So you can submit your questions and I will choose some of the best ones and read them out to Dr. Colvin and he will answer them. Uh, you can also submit questions through the chat box, but it would be a lot easier to moderate if you submitted it through the Q&A. So let's, See, let's give it about three to... Taylor, Taylor in the chat is on to me, right? This was actually a covert advertisement for Greek classes. Right? I, I made a meme once that showed Anakin. Is it possible to learn this power? Yes, it is. Just sign up. <laughs> Yeah, I did, Abigail. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. I owe a lot of these insights to David Dulley, and I recommend his books to you, uh, particularly volume two of his collected works entitled New Testament Judaism. Uh, this, this past summer, I taught a course for Davenant Institute, for Davenant Hall, rather, uh, on Jewish background of the New Testament. We talked about several of these ideas in that course. Hoping to teach it again in a year or two. <laughs> Won't take much, Caleb. <laughs> hey, let's, let's have some questions. a couple more minutes for everybody to submit their questions.
Maybe I should offer my students some bonus points if they ask for them. <laughs> bribe them. Seriously. One brownie point if you ask a good question. Okay, we'll give it a give it one more minute. <clears throat> you have a pointed one? Okay, that's a fair, that's an interesting question. Actually. Mm. Let's see. So someone asks, uh, how accurate are our current translations of the Bible? Yeah. Um, so in in early, well, Second Temple and later Judaism, we have um, targums. Right? The translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic for the use of congregations that don't speak Hebrew, don't understand Hebrew. Instead, that's a sacred language, but we've got to turn it into a language understanded of the people, as the 39 articles put it. Um, well, you need to understand that your English Bible is a Targum. Okay? It, it is, I, I, I think I, I was sitting in class, not in class, I was sitting in a sermon. Um, Bill Clark, I don't know if you if I've told you this story, but uh, Rob Zoe at Church of Our Lord in Victoria, was my previous pastor, he was he was preaching a sermon and he got to some point and he and said, if you want to know what the Greek translation says, you can have to ask Matt. And I shouted from the back pew, "It is not a translation." Right? <clears throat> um, the Greek is, I mean, in the Septuagint is, but the, the, the New Testament, no. Um, so the answer is, and I've got my Greek reading students here, and they have to read New Testament with me. And you guys can attest that, yes, your English translations are really quite good, right? They get it right 99% of the time. And that's good enough for you to know the gospel and know the Lord and be saved. But if you want to have extra vivid insights, if you want, to, you want to catch every nuance, then you're going to need to study and you're going to need to receive the gifts that God has given the church of scholars. Okay. Um, they're, they're not there for no reason. And all your translations in English were produced by them. So it's valuable and essential um, for somebody to be doing this job and, and learning the languages um, but your English Bible is pretty good. That would be my answer. What would you like me to do next to Michael? Uh, let's see. Here's, here's a good one. <clears throat> so someone has a methodological question. He says, I've often heard cautions about using the rabbinic literature to interpret the New Testament because of its later date. Can you interact with that and offer some insights about how to use this literature responsibly? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question. Um, and it's, it's actually one that uh, David Instone Brewer, who is a, um, an expert in Jewish background in the New Testament and in rabbinic literature, I think he teaches at Tinder House um, in, in the UK, he has added a special preface to the English translation of Strack Billerbeck, warning about chronological mistakes. Um, so, the answer is, no, we can't just blithely back project 
everything the rabbis say from the Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud from 450 and Babylonian Talmud from 550 or later, um, or even from the Mishnah in 215, 250 AD, um, we can't just blithely grab traditions and practices that the Jews have from those documents and assume that they're at work in the New Testament. What we can do is when we see something puzzling in the New Testament, Jews behaving in ways that we don't understand, it might well be worth looking at the Talmud or the, or the Mishnah or, or the Targums or other rabbinic literature um, and seeing if there's any traditions that maybe were preserved for a couple hundred years. Um, and some of my students have done work on this. So Abigail, for instance, gave a, a talk for my Greek class about um, Jewish rules about Jews not using vessels together with, with Samaritans. Right, because Samaritans are unclean. Well, that's a, that's a ruling that we know the Jews passed. And Sanhedrin, shortly before the Jewish war, declared all Samaritans to be unclean with the uncleanness of menstruation because they'd never been properly purified. Well, we only know about that from rabbinic literature and later. Right? But it's pretty obviously also at work in, in John chapter 4 because um, the, the woman says, uh, Maybe it's John, it's, it's unclear where the narrator starts talking, but um, you have nothing to draw with when the Bible is deep. Jews don't use vessels together with Samaritans. Why not? Because of this cleanness business. So that's an instance where there's something illuminating to be gained from rabbinic sources. I, for my own part, I think that the pendulum is swinging back toward use of rabbinic sources. Um, I think there are valuable insights to be had. Yes, we need to be careful about chronology. But there's little excuse for Christians being lazy about it anymore. I think that there, there have been, I've been counting pastors who say, no, don't look at the rabbinic sources. That's precisely the sort of wicked, you know, Phariseeism that Jesus was opposed to. Well, that's not fair. Um, the, the rabbis preserve um, cultural usages, cultural norms, figures of speech, idioms, ways of expression. Um, rituals, all kinds of things that is also at work in the New Testament. These are, these are sister religions that split off um, from biblical Judaism. Um, so there's value to be had. Does that answer? I'm, I'm curious, whoever asked that question, if you want to press me any more about it, you'd be, you'd be welcome to. Um, if not, next. That's a, a really interesting line of inquiry, and if, if another question is submitted, I'd Put that to the front. Um, in the meantime, someone else asks, um, are there any significant parts of the New Testament where followers of Jesus utilized his methods and used some covert code language? Or was that not widely used, if at all, because they were explicitly stating that Jesus was the Messiah after his, ascent, after his ascension? Yeah, it isn't, it isn't a hidden thing anymore, is it? Um, that's a great question, and I'll admit I haven't thought a lot about it. Um, the first candidate that springs to my mind is the Apostle Paul. And um, I'm actually teaching a course for Davenant Hall right now on Luke and Acts. And one of the, one of the coming weeks, we're going to be discussing the speeches that Paul makes. Um, and uh, one of the things that we've seen in, in our research for that course is that Paul is actually extremely careful um, about what he says. 
for instance, on, on the Areopagus in Athens, um, Paul seems to be, uh, there's just like a surface level understanding of that speech that says, oh, Paul, Paul, he's just appealing to Stoic principles and he's quoting Stoic writers. So he clearly thinks that the Stoics are, are right as far as they go. And now he's going to tell you the missing pieces of that puzzle. Um, and the unknown God that you've been worshiping this whole time. So, you know, Stoicism is compatible with Christianity as far as it goes. Well, no, actually, if you read Paul's speech carefully, and here I commend everybody to, uh, to read uh, C. Kevin Rowe's World Upside Down, which contains a fabulous analysis of Acts 17. Um, if you read it carefully with Rowe, you'll find that it's as though Paul is really hedging his bets a little bit. He's choosing his words super carefully because he knows that he would eventually need to sit down with anybody who's persuaded by his speech and explain to them the differences between Stoic panentheism and um, the divine omnipresence of Yahweh, uh, between Stoic cyclical history and um, reincarnation versus Jewish and Christian doctrine of resurrection, that all kinds of points. Paul has carefully walked this tightrope, um, a nice edge between pleasing and tickling the ears of the Stoics, Stoic hearers on the Areopagus, and then on the other hand, holding fast to the deeply Jewish and deeply controversial um, world picture that he's actually himself believing, namely that God has set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given truth of, the proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Well, that's not something that fits in Stoicism. Um, but it's a, it's a really good question. It's one I'd like to think more about. Thanks for asking. Um, can I look at the chat here? Tanya McDaniel has a question about other indirect communication. Yeah, I think I mean, I didn't cover the half of it in, t in tonight's talk. Certainly the, the fig tree, um, that's coded communication and no one would miss it. There are others as well that are, for instance, that N.T. Wright suggests that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Well, what's this mountain? And Wright says, probably the temple mount. In other words, this is, this is probably a statement about judgment coming on the Jerusalem temple. So coded communication. Um, fig trees, of course, uh, there's Old Testament roots for that imagery, that it stands for Israel. And so for Jesus to wither the fig tree um, and to say, may no one get fruit from you ever again, um, that's active judgment upon Israel as the planting of Yahweh that he expects fruit from. And of course, the demand for fruit is a motif common to all kinds of utterances of Jesus. You got the wicked parable of the wicked vine dressers. It's not a fig tree, it's vines in that case, but it's still the owner of the vineyard wants the fruit from his crop. And um, there it's not, it's not, the, uh, not the tree itself, it's the stewards of it, it's the vine dressers who have or the tenant farmers who owe the fruit to the master. Um, and all this goes back to Isaiah chapter 5 and the, the song of the vineyard. Judge, please, between me and my vineyard, says the Lord. Um, so, yeah, it's a recurring biblical theme. Um, do try to use the q and I will, I will go ahead and answer JJ's question. Um, would, you, would you change your viewpoint if we transferred, you mean Greek and Aramaic? 
and Hebrew um, correctly. Well, yeah, I think I think it, one of the things that's been borne in upon me as a, a Greek scholar, and that's my expertise is Greek, not not so much Hebrew or Aramaic, although I'm interested in those languages. Um, it's been borne in upon me how much you really do need to know those Semitic languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, in order to fully grasp what's going on in, um, in the Greek of the New Testament. So for instance, even just tonight, we, we had this amarta, you have said it, right, in Hebrew. Um, and that's what's behind uh, the, the suepas, you have said it, that Jesus replies to several questions. Well, that's, that's a, a phrase that we have in Aramaic and Hebrew sources, and we can look at them to see what flavor it really has. Uh, and that's valuable as a, as a method of scholarship. Um, it's, it's a mistake to simply look at the Greek, open LSJ, look at the classical meaning of it in Plato or Xenophon or Homer, and assume that you know what that word means. Language scholarship is not algebra. Um, it involves nuance and careful attention and a, an awareness of um, bilingualism. And it, there's a very interesting book by Maurice Casey called Aramaic Sources of Mark's Gospel, in which he, he argues that there are a lot of expressions in Mark's Gospel and then also in Matthew and Luke that show evidence of interference. That's when somebody is a native speaker of one language and then they're speaking a different language, it shows up. Expressions and constructions and ways of talking from their first language seep into the way they speak the second language. And uh, Casey shows that that happens in the Greek of the New Testament as well. Um, probably not least because, um, yeah, that's right, that's right, Bill Clark. Um, probably not least because the New Testament Gospels are the product of eyewitness testimony from native Aramaic and Hebrew speakers. So of course their Greek is gonna sound a little funny. What would you like me to answer next? <laughs> Let's see, um, hmm. So somebody wants to know if this, if this um, Jesus's method of speaking indirectly, speaking in code, if that originates with him or if there are significant instances, instances of it in the Old Testament. Or, <laughs> um, I mean, Jesus quotes Isaiah, you know, therefore I speak to them in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Well, that's a line that came straight out of Yahweh's mouth. Right? That's Israel's God talking. So for Jesus to be running around doing this is to be doing another typically um, Yahweh way of talking. Um, and I, I think you could argue that, yes, that is the case. Um, I, I think, for instance, of uh, there's been scholarship done on the meanings of the plagues that Yahweh has Moses do in Egypt, that they are all highly targeted coded messages aimed at the gods of the Egyptian pantheon to show that they don't have power over crops or over the weather or over the Nile or, and so forth. Um, that's coded, very pointed communication um, in the Old Testament from Israel's God to, to an Egyptian public. Um, I, I'd like to think about it more, Wyatt. It's a, it's a great question. Um, it begs to have a book written about it. Um, but yeah, my initial answer is yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would add that 
I, I think a lot of Christians are kind of allergic because they're, they're dealing with, you know, some man's head of Christ and precious moments and veggie tales and um, sort of pop evangelical Christianity that they assume, well, Jesus would never deceive anybody. That's lying. And the Ten Commandments say, don't lie. Well, Jesus said, I'm not going up to the feast. And then after his brothers went up, he went up, up, up too, secretly. Hmm. Um, that's, not, that's not what the Ten Commandments are about. Right? The Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You're not bearing false witness against somebody. But in deceiving, like I, get, I opened this talk with the example of Boaz. And when I first discovered that reading of the Book of Ruth, it totally shifted what kind of a story it was. Everybody assumes that it's just a romance novel. It's not. It's almost like a legal thriller. There's this, this special trick that Boaz uses to hoodwink um, Mr. So-and-so, who we don't even know his name because he's been obliterated from history because he didn't become the father of the line of the Messiah like Boaz did. Um, but he's held up. You know, Boaz is, is a crafty fellow. Jacob is crafty and is praised for it in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't condemn... Jacob for being um, a trickster. Uh, I think that's, that's another misreading. And people say, oh, Jacob had to run away from, from uh, his home and, and from his brother because he'd been a liar and a trick, you know, a, a cheat. And uh, don't be like Jacob. Well, not, that's not a biblical attitude. Um, you know, ultimately, Jesus is the, the greatest trickster. Um, the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities, the joke was on them. They got hoodwinked and fooled and crucified. Um, anyway, so that would be my answer to that one. There's several questions um, about application and how the things that you're saying should change our, our beliefs and practices, but one specifically says, um, how would slash should the modern church's practice of communion change in light of the idea that the breaking of the bread was a coded message. <laughs> I think one thing it should tell you is don't leave right after you get the bread because you don't end well if you do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, for this answer, I mean, there's, there's a lot more recommendations that I would make. And uh, the last chapter of my book on book entitled the lost supper is uh, devoted to some of those. So, uh, in a nutshell, I think you should use real bread, no styrofoam wafer, wafers. Right? Jesus doesn't say, my body is styrofoam indeed. Right? Um, he, you should use real wine, not, not Welch's grape juice, because th th that's a feature, not a bug. Um, the unleavened and leavened issue, I'm a little looser about that, um, because unleavened bread would probably only have been had around Passover time, and we know from the the gospel from, uh, from the book of Acts that the supper continues to be practiced probably more than weekly the rest of the year round. So um, that's, uh, there, there are other things. I mean, James Jordan has argued the supper ought to be had seated after the pattern of Jesus' feeding the 4,000 and 5,000. He commands them explicitly to sit down. Um, I'm not so insistent on that. I, I want to humbly submit to other authorities and my Anglican usage is uh, kneeling at a veil. Sourdough, oh dear. Yeah, that would be, that would be very much not unloving, right? 
It, uh, yeah, I'm not picky about it, dude. I don't think that they're going to be cheated of of Jesus, right? They're not going to. It's not going to show up. Oh no, it's wafers. So I guess we're out of luck. No, it's a matter of what's better symbolism and worse symbolism. Not not does it work or not. Okay. Um, but I, I commend that chapter of my book to you if you're interested in that question. Message me at, afterwards. My email is uh, calvinism at gmail.com, like Calvinism, but with an O. I'd be happy to talk further with you about that question. Next. Mm, someone uh, someone wants to know whether or not, so we, we get these, these sort of um, persistent translational errors that are almost traditional, like the, the what you've come to do. And yeah. uh, Jesus is uh, speaking to Judas in the garden. Somebody wants to know if there was any account given of why it was translated incorrectly. Like, was um, there a certain logic behind it that caused them to choose that over, over yeah, something else? Yeah, have, have you seen, so it's a couple of things. First, some of these utterances are deliberately cryptic. Second, some of these utterances are um, Semitic idioms and not that obvious to people whose expertise is Greek. And third, you ever seen that Mr. Bean skit where he's cheating on the math test and looking at the other guy's paper? Right? That happens with Bible translations quite frequently. Right? And some of them are quite upfront about it. You know, the new King James, when it has a choice, will opt to follow the old King James and just update its language. Um, so yeah, Bible translations are incestuous. They know what each other have done and they, they don't approach it with a blank slate. Yeah. Um, is that answering all of that question or is there more to it? Um, I, I think that they're asking about, you know, maybe that instance specifically, but I, I think that the answer that you've given broadly applies. Okay. Yeah. That, that would be my answer. I think. Let's see. <laughs> Someone wants to know how long all of this research took. <laughs> um, a while, yeah. Uh, pretty much all my spare time for the last two or three weeks, and it's not—it's not the fruit of just those two or three weeks. It's reading a lot of scholarship over the last twenty years, and storing away the, my most favorite chestnuts to to bring out and weave together. Um, so, those of you who've had me for classes, you've probably heard some of the things we talked about tonight. Right? So, I hope it. Part of the goal here was to put a lot of those tidbits together into a larger pattern and say, this is something Jesus does a lot. Um, it's part of his technique. Now you heard the your story three times now. This is my hobby. <laughs> what I like to do. Some people watch monster truck rallies, Ivy biblical scholarship. <clears throat> Very good hobby to have. Someone, someone says, how did uh, the beloved disciple and Peter specifically know the bread sign? Well, Jesus told them, right? It's the one I'm going to give this psalmion on to, right? So he set it up in advance, just the way Judas set up the kiss in advance. The one I kissed, it, he's the one resting. So this is pre, pre-arranged, artificial, right? It's not like, and that's a difference, by the way, from the claim that I'm making in my book about the bread, um, the Passover Messiah bread that Jesus is using to identify himself as Messiah. Um, I'm claiming in the book that that was probably pre-existent, not something that he had to set up artificially. Um, 
that it was already identified with the Messiah, and all he did was say, and I'm identified with the bread. Therefore, transitively, you, you do the math. Um, but the sop, it's not a sop, psalmion, the morsel, which, by the way, is an interesting term because the rabbis have legislation about what's the minimum amount of unleavened bread that you have to eat in order to fulfill the commands in, in, in Exodus. What's the minimum amount of Passover lamb that you need to eat in order to fulfill the commands? And the answer is always a portion the size of an olive. Don't ask me which owl. Maybe it's a special, you know, aluminum owl stored in the Academy Francaise or whatever, but it's, that's the rabbinic minimum measure is the, the standard olive size. And that's probably what the psalmion refers to as some minimum amount of bread that he's handed to him. Um, does that answer? I think so. Well, okay. Next. And moving through these at, at very good pace. Um, so somebody wants to know, with all of these errors, where does that leave us English speakers who don't know Greek or Aramaic? Um, you're in good hands because think about what I told you tonight. How much of it changes your salvation at all? How much of it changes Christian ethics at all? How much of it changes ecclesiology at all? Justification, hermeneutics, not much, right? Um, you can get along quite well with an English Bible. It's good to live a Christian life with an English Bible. Um, God has revealed to you quite adequate revelation in your English Bible. But if you enjoy learning more, there's more for you. You can never reach the bottom. Uh, no, I haven't arrived. I'm still learning a, a bunch of new things every year. Um, and I, I would hope that the, I, d I don't want the takeaway from this talk to be, oh no, my English Bible is wrong, right? What, what, whatever shall I do? I can't trust it ever again. That, that's not what I want you to take away from it. What I want you to take away is um, that there's no limit to how far we can research. There's those continual new riches and nuances and things that we can unfold out of, out of the Bible. You know, a scribe instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a, a steward who brings out of his storehouse things old and things new. So I'm hoping you got a little bit of both of those tonight. Next. Hmm. Let's see. Let's see a funny question. You see one you'd like to answer, go ahead and go Yeah, ahead. how often would they cut one zero off or cut off one zero? Was, it, was that often? <laughs> the answer is I told you all the instances I know of. That is, it happened twice, but it happened to high priests twice. And when it, when it happens to the high priest servant, I think that's significant. But no, I don't think it's happening every year or two. <laughs> all right, you pick one, Michael. Okay. Well, somebody wants to go back to that instance of um, Jesus talking to, to Judas. Um, so one of, the, one of the translational errors that has persisted is translating it as an interrogative. She wants to know why, why do people do that when you've you know, clearly shown that you clearly cannot. Is that an instance of a Semiticism or is that something else? Yeah. So let's look at that for a second. Maybe I'll go back to it. So um, it's easier for me to see the command version. That could be simple, but simply done by ellipsis. 
except that it's odios. Right? Jesus knows what he is doing, and he has already done it. So there's no need to command him to do it, except, I mean, on, on my reading, it means we don't need all this extra stuff. You're here to betray me. You just did it. Fine. Stop. Right? You're not fooling anybody. Um, that's the force of the, of the, the statement. Uh, it, it's not missing, in other words. It's not missing a, a verb. But it's easy for me to see that if you think it's missing a verb, then it's easy to make it the command form. The question form, I'll be honest, I don't know what those King James translators were, were doing, because they're the origin of it. Wherefore art thou come? Right? Um, there isn't an interrogative in there. And worse, in our, in our earliest Greek manuscripts, there's no question mark either. Um, there's no punctuation. Uh, I would need to research it a little bit more, but it would be interesting to check what the Vulgate is, um, because it's possible that the Vulgate might have influenced it um, for, for that. Uh, curious. 2650, why don't we go check the Vulgate right now? Um, let me do it, man. My Bible thing has uh, quite, here we go. Matthew 2650. And it's got the Vulgate right now. So, Dixit, Ah, that could be the origin of it. Now, any Latinists want to help me out here? So, ad quad is ambiguous because Latin uses quad both as the um, both as an interrogative and as a relative, right? So it could either be to that which you have come, or for that which you count have come, um, or it could be for what have you come. Um, still, it would be better to have I'd quid. Still, yeah, I think we would want quid. I don't know. That 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 doesn't solve it, but it's a good good thought. Latin. Okay. Um, I, I'll take that as some homework. I should go figure out what the King James Bible translators were, were thinking of there. How old is the interrogative version of that? I, think, I still think it's indefensible. There's nothing in the Greek to indicate it. But I will, I will take some homework. <clears throat> well, I, think, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Okay. I, I like this one. Uh, somebody wants to know wants to know when your translation of the New Testament is coming out. <laughs> oh boy, um, I have several different writing projects on my plate right now, um, and one of them is not a translation, but it's a narratological commentary on um, the Gospel of Luke. So perhaps that will be accompanied with a translation. Um, and the excerpts of translation until eventually we've got the whole thing. Yeah, you know, dribs and drabs. That's the way N.T. Wright did it, right? He wrote his little commentaries on, from the commentaries on the New Testament and then collected all the translations they had done, put, put it together. Yeah, I don't know. Um, don't know how long it will take. I'm not a good writer. I, do, I take a long time. It's like pulling teeth. Um, Took me 17 years to produce my book on the on the Last Supper. Um, yeah, 
and then this 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 one on ordination is pressing. I need to get it out. I'm I'm probably going to try to do it this coming this coming year, 2022. Thank you so much, Michael. Really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, glad thank I can bring my students to it. Yeah, thank you for coming. I think that everybody's really enjoyed it. So those of you who who have been Dr. Colvin's students and want to be again, or those of you who never have and, and would like to for the first time, Dr. Colvin is teaching two courses with Davenant Hall in the upcoming terms. So he's got one uh, in this so, upcoming. I need to I need to clarify that. I'm sorry that they didn't um, notify you, but my wife has some health problems that she's facing and I'm I'm gonna be needing to take this next term off. Um, however, I'm hopeful that I'll be back for the summer term. Okay. So right. I, well, I, I apologize for that. I, um, I apologize for that. Yeah, so no, in that no case, I encourage everyone to subscribe to the Davenant Institute's mailing list for future updates about when Dr. Colvin will be teaching courses without making any firm pronouncements. So we can, we can hear from Dr. Colvin whenever his schedule allows him to, to teach and we are praying for a speedy recovery and, and time in the future. So with that in mind, thank you, Dr. Colvin, and thank you to everyone who joined us this evening. This lecture will be available on YouTube and on uh, all podcasting platforms for people to listen to after the fact. So thank, thank you, very, you very much, much and have a wonderful evening.